Hi everyone, I'm super excited to host Brian Wrigley. Uh, he's a product manager in construction di division at Boston Dynamics. If you are in AC space, you have heard about Brian, so I don't need to talk much more about it. And if you are not aware, like I, I became a fan of Brian's uh, podcast, which was like amazing series of awesome AC tech people. It was very insightful and uh, very uh, in interesting vibe uh, these guys created in their podcast. So highly recommend to check that out. But uh, before that, like I uh, I will I'm aiming this podcast to focus more on Brian's journey and uh, discover what are the reasons uh, he's still uh, doing work which he's doing today. Like uh, what are some re revelations and realizations in AC tech industry? So without much ado, Brian, uh, can you tell us about your background, where you grew up and out of all things you can do in life, why architecture? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the for the nice introduction and for having me on. Uh, yeah, how, how far back do you want me to go? Do you want me to go all the way back? I was born on an Air Force base, that's a fun fact. Um, I sometimes wonder if that's why I'm so obsessed with machines. Uh, architecture, um, I, Wanted to be a doctor, I think, most of my childhood, because um, my aunt was a pediatrician. I looked up to her, but uh, I think in when I was like 12 or 13, I started taking drafting classes and became like really enamored with drawing and with geometry. Um, and then that led into uh, 3D modeling and actual architecture classes at my high school. My high school was very like kind of trades oriented. Um, so we had like carpentry and drafting and architecture and architecture class was basically just like the basics of like home blueprints and things like that. Uh, we used software called home architect deluxe, which you could buy at like office max, uh, it was actually pretty cool. And I think technically BIM because you could do like, you could do quantity takeoffs with it. So it was like meant for, if you were like building your own house, you could go to the lumber store and know like basically like how many lineal feet of, of lumber you would need to frame your house yourself. So that was kind of, that was kind of cool. Um, and that's also that same class. We used Rhino in that class as well. Um, so I've been doing NURBS modeling since I was about 14. Uh, we used Bryce, which was a landscape thing. So that's where we would make the landscapes and then we would make the architecture in either Home Architect Deluxe or Rhino, depending on what type of architecture we were doing. And then we would composite all together in, oh God, what was it called? Some, it wasn't Photoshop, but it was some like Photoshop-esque mm -hmm. thing. So that, that all got me really like excited. And there had been a few people from my high school. I went to high school in Ohio in a town called Mansfield, Ohio. Um, where they filmed Shawshank Redemption. That's like the only thing it's known oh. for. Oh, and they make <laughs> they make carousels there. So that's another fun fact. Um, but there had been a few people from my high school who had gone to the architecture school at Cincinnati, which was only, you know, uh, several hours south of us. Um, so, so I became really interested in that and I started looking into that program and then decided like, yeah, I really want to do architecture I want to be an architect so that's that was kind of the I probably made that decision about halfway through high school so um alas I could have been a rich doctor but then I went into architecture <laughs> instead like a fool <laughs> I see and like what are some funny or struggle stories from your undergrad or grad life oh god um <clears throat> yeah, I, I was really into it, you know, the, all of the, all the stuff that I think is toxic now, like the all nighters and, you know, <laughs> never sleeping and not eating right and stuff. I was like 100% into that and just thought it was part of the culture and was very excited <laughs> and it was all very new. I had never lived in a big city before. So I thought Cincinnati was like a huge city and I was living an urban life and that was really exciting. Um, and I mean, it is a really cool city and a really interesting way to experience architecture as you're learning about architecture. But I remember also getting pretty burnt out by third year. So I was in a four-year undergrad program. And I think it was the third year 
I started looking into transferring out of architecture Whoa. school and, and doing other things. Um, cause I was just like bummed. Um, <laughs> and I had also had, I had also had a really like, I had a studio I didn't like. Um, it was a sustainability studio actually. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> um, <laughs> which like, I'm not anti-sustainability. I think it was just the pedagogy. Uh, but, and then I had a, and also that was like, I think that was the time I stayed up for like, like three nights in a row or something and like almost died. So it was just like pushed to the max. And I had had a, I had a really boring internship where I just worked on like underground parking garages in Archicad for like several months. So it was just like, this sucks. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I looked into transferring out, but then I kind of thought, eh, I'm so close to just getting this degree. And I ended up coming back for my final year and really enjoying my final year and being happy that I that I stayed with it. Um, there's also, <laughs> I went to DAP at Cincinnati, which is, uh, the building is actually called the Aronoff Center and was designed by Peter Eisenman. So I also had this antagonistic relationship with this weird <laughs> building um, <laughs> as, as an architecture student, it was kind of a surreal experience. So every time we had a bad time in that building, we would just blame it on Peter Eisenman, who was also notorious for taking us as interns and not paying us. So, you know, we had a bone to pick, but, um, so yeah, that, that was that revolution. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also, I did some other things in undergrad too. Like I was really interested. I had this like fantasy at one point of double majoring in English literature and architecture, which of course wasn't physically possible without like more years of school, but I did manage to take some creative writing workshops. Um, and that was really important to me to be able to get outside of the space of the design school, which was all consuming. Like you could just spend your entire college life just in that one building which is a real shame because you know i wanted that like typical american college campus like life so i was able to get out of there every once in a while and do my do my creative writing exercises and that was that was really you know that was really important to me at that age so that's the context behind behind your creative tweets <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yes, I owe that to my creative writing workshops. How to compose the perfect tweet? <laughs> no, Twitter came. Twitter came later. That was not. That was not a technology yet. Thank God. Um, so I wasn't wasting time on the internet. Got it. So from getting frustrated in third year and thoughts about transferring into other discipline to getting passionate about technology, thinking about grad school, like, oh, what what happened? Yeah, I was always so I was always like more technology oriented than usual, I would say, or than the typical student, perhaps, because I had that background in 3D modeling. Um, drawing, drawing was really painful for me. So that's like a big part of, you know, the architecture school I went to is like, you know, years of like hand drawing courses. Um, <laughs> and like, you can teach it. And I definitely got, you know, good at drawing from not being able to draw at all but i hated it in my mind drawing is just the immediacy of you know your brain to some medium so i had always considered what i did in 3d modeling to be sketching and drawing and you know you're you're stubborn when you're young and you just want to do that it's actually it's good to learn other ways of of designing and producing and be exposed to that but i you know i really came to believe that it was okay for me to ideate and sketch in 3d so that was kind of a thread when i was trying to decide where i wanted to go for grad school i was like looking at <laughs> i don't you know i don't know if my brain was fully developed back then when i was thinking about grad school so i was like okay i want to go to like you know columbia seems to be like the coolest school where i get to do crazy digital things and i'm gonna learn how to script be so cool if I could script it's all I cared about was like learning how to script but I had nothing I needed to script for that you know um but then I got denied from Columbia and then I also applied to Princeton uh, and I think the only reason I applied there is because it's like the smallest architecture class and I oh. just was like that's really elite so if I got into there you know I don't know people would respect me I guess I don't know what the <laughs> thinking was um and I got of course denied from 
Princeton as well. Um, uh, so Cincinnati um, at the time was transitioning their graduate program and I think it was a new graduate program. So they really needed students and they needed, it's not, it's, it's unusual to take a bunch of your undergrads into your graduate program, but that was kind of the era and what they were doing. Um, and I had applied for a graduate assistantship in what was called the Rapid Prototyping Center, which is a which is a digital fabrication facility, laser, 3D printing, CNC machining, uh, that was primarily used by the industrial and transportation design students. But they did give uh, assistantships to architecture, graduate architecture students. So you would get to, I forget what it was. I think it was like you worked like 10 hours a week or something in that lab. Um, and I had got that position and I got denied everywhere else. So I was like, okay, well, you know, it could be worse. Um, so I'll just stay in Cincinnati. I like Cincinnati. Um, and I, that's when I started working in the rapid prototyping center and the rapid prototyping center, it wasn't like a typical academic like fab lab because most fab labs are teaching facilities. Like you go in there to learn about digital fabrication. This was not that. This was like a professional job shop, like ran by like a master carpenter and like CNC machinist uh, who had worked at um, I think Hasbro before when they transitioned from handmade molds to CNC machine molds. He showed me some of the original GI Joe molds that they had made. Oh. And, teeny tiny like hair width cnc bits that they use to do like all of the detailing for like the cobra commander masks and stuff like that it was really cool um so that was that was pretty that was really good because it was super professional so like i i became like a professional like cnc programmer and machinist um you know on the software side we used delcam power mill which has since been acquired by autodesk um super sophisticated um cam software and then we had uh we had like vertical machining centers uh we had uh routers we also had a five axis um and then on our largest uh coma router we also had uh some fourth axis attachments um as well so we did some really sophisticated setups and i made like you know a lot of car parts and like electric bicycle parts and hand tools and things like that. So it was a really good way of exercising my mind. You know, I had this history with like NURBS modeling, which is also really popular in product and transportation design. Um, and it was, it was nice too, um, because you kind of got exposure to full like design to fabrication, you know, iterative workflows for different disciplines. So, um, Whereas my background was largely in, in Rhino. Um, and, you know, you would see like the industrial design students using um, SolidWorks for like solid modeling and assemblies. And uh, you would see the transportation design students using Alias, which is like Rhino on crack um, for like really advanced nerves, class A <laughs> surface modeling. And you'd also see like, what are the what data is inherent in those types of uh, modelers? that also like lends downstream intelligence to manufacturing. So there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do with uh, CAM software to drive toolpaths from like surface isocurve structures and do parametric toolpathing. Not even like, you don't even have to like script or use Grasshopper or anything. Those are just tools in like advanced CAM software that can extract that kind of information. The, the flow, right, of a particular surface can be used in its actual subtractive machining. Um, and like working with uh, solid modeling and assemblies also led me to doing like an independent grad school study in a digital project, which was like the Gary Technologies, like CATIA. Mm -hmm. instantiation uh so i you know which was also i think my very first exposure to um you know parametric or like adaptive design you know driving things with parameters like seeing beams resize as i like moved walls and changed spacing so that was that was like a year or two before i had ever tried grasshopper and a, i think a year or two after i had first tried generative components and generative component, generative components confuse the shit out of me. I think I was like, 
I was still an undergrad. So I, I did an internship at KPF in undergrad and KPF has a really amazing design technology culture and a lot of resources. So I think I was like 19. I was wearing all like Mansfield, Ohio goodwill clothes <laughs> because like I knew you were supposed to dress up in New York. I was like, oh, I'm going to New York City. I gotta like be dressed up at an architecture firm. I must have looked like so awful, um, but you know, I didn't have any money. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, um, so they had like Revit. They had uh, pre pre Autodesk Revit, and it was like Charles River software. Um, and they had uh, generative components um, because a lot of the people who worked at Bentley like also worked at KPF. So there's some like, I'm sure like OG computational design name drops I could do if I could like remember everybody's name off the top of my head. Um, but there's a gentleman named Kyle Steinfeld who was working there before he got his PhD. I think he teaches out West now and he's like a pretty brilliant mind in, in the space. And he, he was like really nice to me because I was just some like annoying intern, I'm sure. And, I, you know, he, it was like the first time I'd seen Rhino script and the first time I'd seen generative components and the first time I'd heard of BIM and seen Revit. And I tried all of it, but it was all very confusing and overwhelming to me. I had no computer science experience. I had extensive 3D modeling experience, but that did not translate into like generative components. I remember like the first thing I tried to do in generative components was to establish a relative frame or a relative coordinate system. And that idea in and of itself was like too much for me. Like I was like, well, no, there's one zero 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 and X, Y, Z. Why would there be another one? So like it was all like kind of overwhelming and I really stepped away from that sort of technology. So in grad school, like most of what I focused on was um, more and more complex modeling, but still like manual modeling, uh, bringing like Maya into my toolkit and learning how to use animation and simulation tools. Uh, RealFlow was another one that I used a lot. Um, and, and also just making like kind of wacky shit because I had done an internship at um, RAC, uh, Francois Roche's studio in Paris. So was kind of exploring like those ideas um but also sometimes confusing those ideas with like <laughs> technical craft and you know thinking that the designs were about it was about scripting or it was about using weird geometry and workflows and not that it was like a political act mm -hmm. you know to introduce like radical form or different and uncomfortable ideas into urban spaces that all kind of sunk in a little bit later so you know you're in when you're young you just kind of mimic um so just trying to mimic that that style of work and then i think and i didn't really get into um i don't think i got into yeah i didn't get into like grasshopper um in any serious way uh until like i had tried it in paris when it was called explicit history and it, there were no data trees yet and it was like again i was just like what is this i'm confused i have a lot of like all of my early stories are just like opening something being confused and walking away <laughs> for a few years um yeah sorry to <laughs> age you here like which year are we talking uh the first year i opened so like uh i think 2004 or 5 was the first time i opened generative components uh revit and um rhino script which would have been probably vb.net mm -hmm. uh as the language and then it would have been 2008 that i first opened explicit history because that was the first year grasshopper came out so i think it was called explicit oh. history for like a year and then it was called grasshopper and like we'll say roughly like beginning of 2009 and then 2009 is when i graduated into the recession and was like could not get i just wanted to also like i had all this love for technology but i just wanted to be an architect like i didn't want to be like a specialist I, the thought had never really occurred to me but then i couldn't get a job so i was like i was like what if i stayed at the rapid prototyping center but started opening it up to architects and interior designers and like urban planners mm -hmm. and bring brought that discipline into digital craft and so I did, which was awesome. I got to do that job. It was super fun. Um, 
spent a lot of time explaining why SketchUp isn't good for downstream <laughs> visual fabrication. That, that became a thread through like a big part of my career was trying to police the use of SketchUp. But um, SketchUp's fine, by the way. It's just, you know, if you're trying to do CNC machining off of SketchUp, it's a little weird. Uh, or it was at the time, at least. Um, and then and then started teaching as well. So then I was just like the young junior faculty member who knew about computers. And there was a petition, like the grad students actually like sent a like signed petition to the like graduate school office that said, we demand to be taught grasshopper. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I had taught, I had already taught my first seminar. I taught my first digital fabrication seminar, which was this really bizarre class where you uh where i made you use rhino and i made you use like very elaborate isocurve extraction tools and like surface drawing tools to basically draw tool paths and then use cam to so delcam power mill to use those to drive um actual tool machining operations and um natalie gatenio the designer from future cities lab came and gave a lecture and then she um she kind of like uh, did like a meta critique of my seminar, which is like super awesome uh, to have somebody like her do that. And then she was like, you know, you should really like look at parametric software for this. Like what you're doing is kind of like manually insane. And I'm like, that was my jam. Like I would do something that would like have benefited tremendously from automation, but just like, I loved the tedium. I think I just, like loved the okay, I know what I'm doing for the next 36 hours. Nobody talked to me sort of thing. I'm going to, you know, uh -huh. unfold Slow this zone. complex geometry manually or whatever. So she's like, oh, I was like, okay. And this, for me, this was, there was a lesson here, which was like, I had dipped in and out of like various like computation tools, not really knowing how to engage with them. I think by and large, because I never had a problem that required required that tool set. So this was a case where I was like, okay, I should really teach. And this coincided with this petition demanding grasshopper. So then it all happened. It was like, I should really teach um, how to do this in an automated way. And we should use grasshopper and like, then we can parameterize the toolpath extraction. We can parameterize that relative to like the actual available tool bit sizes. So now we're talking about kind of constrained design spaces because we know um we know what we're doing downstream uh and that really appealed to me as did the idea of creating like intelligent models that could drive downstream manufacturing processes so i lived in i lived on main street in over the rhine which is like downtown cincinnati mm -hmm. um and there was a coffee shop like right next door to where i lived and i would go in there like every night after work and teach myself grasshopper because you only have to stay like 24 hours ahead of your students that's like every junior faculty's dirty trick is they're like i actually barely know more than my students i just learned it <laughs> one day ahead of them <laughs> it's just like um i'm actually trying to find the name of the oh it was called iris book cafe on main street cincinnati so i would go there like every night and and all i was doing was like using like the ISO curve component and figuring out how that interacted with one surface, with a set of surfaces. What happened if I fed it a list? What happened if I fed it a number? So it was really only using like one or two components, but just trying to understand data trees and how that all worked. And I mean, it took, I talk about this a lot, like it took me years to be good at Grasshopper. Like, you know, it probably took me, that was a nine, you know, it probably took me like four years of like constantly using it and working through different problem sets to actually call myself good. You know, by the time I worked at like Woods Baggett where I was like, no, I'm, I'm an expert in how to use this. But I mean, that was like a four or five year journey of mostly self-education. So that's the, that's another lesson too, which is like, you're not, I think some people just expect that you can like take a few seminars in school and just be good at grasshopper and it's like no this is like a commitment this is a long-term relationship that you're entering um and it's only worth entering that relationship if you know that it's going to be productive for you and solve problems that can be solved with with other tool sets or technologies or, or processes um so i taught that seminar 
for several years and it got, and then it kind of went where Grasshopper wasn't just for the toolpathing aspects. Uh, you know, it broadened and Grasshopper was used for the actual, you know, geometry creation and manipulation and the toolpath. And then we'd start to understand there was like an ecosystem of the way that these models and the things intertwine. So you'd have your kind of, We'll say like form finding and then you had your fabrication and then we'd bring in like material constraints so what does it mean to machine into like plywood glue lamb versus like multi-material glue lamb which is what i started doing more when i was at pratt um and you know that kind of led me through i think i was in cincinnati after school for like two and a half years and then got hired at uh, City Tech, which is a CUNY school in Dumbo, Brooklyn, with an undergraduate architectural technology program. So they had a huge grant there called the Fuse Lab grant from the National Science Foundation. And it was basically an opportunity like where, you know, I had trained in a well-established fabrication lab, and it was an opportunity to uh, set one up from scratch myself like mm -hmm. design the lab space, order the equipment, design curriculum around that and to support that. So I thought it was like a nice opportunity for me to start something of my own. And that's when I moved to uh, Brooklyn in uh, January 2012. I see. So tell me like when uh, you were graduating, like what were and you you were exposed to a lot of tools and technology and you were like self learning. Whatever were there any like technology you said okay this is gonna change ac industry i'm betting high on this apart from grasshopper what are the things that came through what are the things that went south yeah um i didn't really think like that at the time um like i wasn't thinking about transforming the industry i was just hoping to be part of it um and when I graduated in 2009 with my graduate degree with my MARC, um, I didn't know Grasshopper or scripting or anything like that. I was just a really good like 3D modeler. Oh, and I was also very good at making physical models, which is kind of a bad thing because then you just get thrown into <laughs> the model shop forever. And like they don't realize that maybe you could also be a designer. Um, so like I was just eager to get into practice and get like experience and try to work my way up as like an architect and wasn't really thinking about, you know, where the industry was going or how to transform it. That really didn't have, that didn't even happen really when I was teaching Grasshopper either. I was just, I just felt like I was exploring like architecture adjacent ideas and, you know, you know, I didn't think too hard about it, to be honest. And it wasn't really until I was at um, City Tech in Brooklyn, because now like it was like the reason the grant was in place and the reason we were changing the curriculum was to give better opportunities to our students. You know, the main like thesis was just training architecture students today it kind of does them a disservice, especially like in such a weak economy at the time, which is say not everyone is going to perform the same like traditional architectural role. So what did we see as like the fundamental kind of like pillars of other skill sets that they could specialize in? So we came up with three tracks, uh, BIM, of course, um, one that uh, I think we started calling it sustainability and then ended up calling it um, performance driven design. Um, and then a third, which we called computational fabrication, which was to differentiate it a little bit from digital fabrication, because I think digital fabrication, at least in our eyes, kind of just implied a workflow. I'm going, I have a CAD model, I export, I have a really old diagram of this somewhere, like I export like a, you know, exchange file format, I bring that into CAM, I perform a CAM operation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and computational fabrication kind of said, there's this whole ecosystem, you know, you can have a centralized data set that moves through different models. It's not an import export situation necessarily. Um, you have these like global parameters. Um, and then you also have these like, uh, interdependent, like ecosystems that are assisted by computational technologies like scripting or automation, or just really computer science and software at large. Um, and that was also, you know, my thinking with all the toolpathing stuff too, right? Which was, we can actually run downstream specific analysis, right? So we can, 
we can run curvature analysis on the surface to understand what tool set we need, like what size bits uh, out of the available library we have downstream. Um, we can analyze this for undercuts so we understand how many machining positions it requires. Is this a flip mill or does this require multi-axis machining? If it is multi-axis, what are the approaches? If it is like flipped or rotated, what extra jigs do we need? And I did a lot of like workshops around like going really deep into that sort of thing, which is like, how can you throw as much of that upstream as possible such that when you are ready to take your data set into CAM, you know, it's like optimized for that process, but also leverages that process to uh, to be efficient. Like, you know, just in terms of geometric complexity, one of the things that fascinated me about toolpath artifacts, the idea that you would coarsely machine something to leave like the kind of leftover material or cusping behind was that you could create really, really complex geometry without having to explicitly model that. And I really liked that as as like an efficient modeling method and now like does it matter how complex your geometry is like is there value in that in and of itself not necessarily but at the time i thought that was cool um so that that all kind of was like let's differentiate computational fabrication from digital fabrication i think that phrase was coined by uh mode lab so uh ronnie parsons and gil akos uh they had gone to columbia and then formed a design consultancy and studio called Mode Lab. And they had served as consultants for the Fuse Lab NSF grant. Um, and they're definitely mentors to me and bringing me into the like eye-opening world of like grasshopper plus digital fabrication. Um, so the idea then was that we had students who would go and work for sustainability consultants or they would work for architectural mm -hmm. fabricators or they would work uh, on like design technology teams and i'm really proud of the students we graduated in those like several years that i taught there because if you know anything about the cuny system it tends to be especially at city tech it tends to be uh students from the boroughs like these are local students um and typically lower income students as well that don't really have opportunities to travel or go to other universities and their dream is to go to city college, which is like, you know, that's where you get the bachelor of architecture. But if you don't get into city college, then your backup school is city tech. And it's actually like a bachelor of architectural technology. It's not, yeah. it's not like an accredited program for architecture, but that's what made it awesome was that we didn't have to adhere to, um, you know, some outdated idea of what architectural practice was. Uh, which is like essentially what NCARB has been pushing and really like limiting and gatekeeping who can get licensed, which, and then, you know, shocking now, no one's getting licensed. Um, and they're panicking that there are no architects anymore. <laughs> and we just thought like, let's, you know, we're thinking about like the gatekeeping, we're thinking about like diversity in the field and, you know, how to give like local lower income students the same shot at getting into this field in this profession and we're also just thinking about the realities of the economy which is like there's just no way in hell that all of these students can work at architecture firms so that was a really important moment and i would say that like of every job i worked i think i'm most proud of of those three years because i do feel like not just me obviously but the entire faculty there and the kind of all the supporting stakeholders around that really made a difference in a generation of, of young students lives yeah and i could see the impact uh, in the lives and the change uh, it's creating and when you, whenever you're talking about fabrication over the air i could feel how much passionate you are about <laughs> <laughs> the technology so afterwards like i, I want to i'm curious to know your thoughts so for the students out there listening to this uh, podcast and watching this there are various technology they can focus like they can either focus on digital fabrication ai generative design uh, yeah. robotics like what's your piece of advice oh goodness uh well i wouldn't be too prescriptive in which of those things <laughs> they they focused on um you know it's it's sometimes hard to give advice um you know i think i was I think I was like privileged in certain ways um, 
and had certain opportunities that were kind of just fell into my lap. And then also I had things outside of my control that directed my career. I mean, like, I don't know if I would be in technology at all if it weren't for the recession. Um, it's really hard to say. So for me to be like, this is how you get from A to B and like, this is how you think about it would be a little bit disingenuous. Um, I was just always really a really curious person and wanted to kind of uh sometimes to a fault too like i mean i had like no social life like and i don't think that's necessarily a good thing but like i was just so interested in learning as much as i could about what it meant to practice architecture mm -hmm. but then i also kind of trusted my gut that it was okay to be interested in things that didn't fit neatly into how i was being taught um i remember like another thing i did and i did a lot of independent studies in grad school because i just couldn't get any like good technology courses it just wasn't a big part of the culture it was a little bit traditional mm -hmm. so like i did a i had mentioned one that i did in with um uh gary the gary technologies stuff but like i did another one um to learn maya um and just spent like a semester like animating a jellyfish in maya and like learning a bunch of the tools there because I just, I had this instinct that like understanding animation software, you know, I think a lot of it is just like chasing something shiny. Like I was seeing what like Greg Lynn was doing and I was seeing what the elite grad schools were doing. I was just kind of mimicking that, but I also kind of instinctively felt like, yes, even though we're kind of appropriating this technology from other other fields like entertainment, this this feels like it offers some additional like flexibility and design that that could be useful in architecture later. And you know, it was interesting too because the uh, if you jump to like 2015, I think, or 2016, when I was in the middle of teaching at Pratt in their graduate architecture and urban design program, um, I I inherited the like Maya class for a few years it was i think it was called architectural animation but it had traditionally been about using maya the how do you use the dimension of time to animate uh at that time it was like very old school because columbia had been exploring that to death for for a while um and i said and i was also working at woods baggett and uh shane berger who runs the design technology team there we were starting to explore VR as a client experience. Uh, I think the first Oculus Rift had just come out and uh, we were all like learning how to use Unity and like finding that it was like pretty user friendly and we could do some pretty like quick and amazing stuff. So I just decided like, we're actually going to, you know, we'll do a Maya module. You should still kind of understand the history of this program, but the future feels like game engines and the future feels like VR, AR, MR. So um, I mean, I started teaching Unity for the purposes. So we would like, we would make architecture in Maya. It would have to be some kind of animated architecture. We would figure out how to bring that animation plus geometry uh, plus materiality into Unity. And then we kind of build an environment around that. You know, you can like, and some trees and some wind. Um, and then we also did this really funny thing that I was obsessed with, which is we used uh, mass motion, which is like a crowd simulation software and figured out how to export all of the people. And the people are like these like low res like zombies. So they kind of like <laughs> walk like this. So you had like all of these like weird, like zombie, like <laughs> white walkers, like, and but then you'd have people in there too and i was always talking about like you know architecture renderings and experiences never have other people which is like so weird um it, it was funny too because you'd 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 make those people colliders as well so that you could physically interact with them but then if you put like you'd put too many people into your architectural model and you couldn't actually like move through because you're just like bumping bumping <laughs> into people so it was like Maya mass motion. So like architecture, people bring that all together in unity and then export at the end of the day, the whole idea was to export a VR app. And that was that semester was when I think it was like Google came out with the cardboard thing. So the beginning of being able to just use your phone, which was awesome. I mean, we were still 
we're still like using Oculus Rifts to get like the higher quality experience, but like it really democratized things to just be able to use your phone. That was, and then, um, and then I think the era of like authoring more sophisticated apps where you could use like the Oculus controllers as like UI interface and draw in VR. Then that whole wave started coming. And then I was like, I am not like good at this. Like, <laughs> like I could like I could teach about this this much. So then like other people came into Pratt who were like better at like authoring like AR apps and interactivity and UI and stuff. And we had also brought Andrew Human on at Woods Bagot and he was getting into all the iOS like authoring side of things. So that's when I kind of gently stepped out of the, um, I would say like game engine mixed reality space. Um, but, you know, just enough to get my toes wet and like kind of reorient some of the curriculum um, to a place that I thought better served those students. Mm -hmm. If if you were to form a six-member team of AC techies, who would oh, you say? God. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Um, man, there are just so many. Um, obviously, Andrew Human, my best friend, um, who I've worked at several jobs with. Um, I feel like this is one of those questions that could be designed to like make people mad or upset for being left out. Um, <laughs> time to put but, you on a spot yeah i mean i could just randomly throw i mean uh i did more recently i've done a little bit of work with my friend maria yablanina um she teaches at the university of toronto she actually makes robots from scratch she's a brilliant designer and roboticist and we kind of collaborated a little bit on how to bring in like uh you know how to use like a design computation tool to kind of reorganize your own office space, but then also send that information to, to robots. So, I mean, it's the same ideas I've always been interested in, which is like, I have some kind of intelligent model. I'm adding like a UI kind of component to that. And then I'm using that data to drive something downstream with machines. I'm just switching from like a CNC machine to, to mobile robots to like physically reconfigure a space. So to interact in this, in the architectural space itself, rather than being like an isolated machine in a factory. Um, so we could throw her on that team as well. God, I mean, where do you, there's so much talent in the space. Um, there's somebody, you know, there's also people like adjacent to the space, like they, you know, they're not necessarily designers, but what they're researching is really interesting. So there's a woman named Cynthia Brosk who's at Stanford and like she teaches these really amazing like kind of post-grad courses in how do I actually evaluate the value of robots construction robots on the job site like how do we actually like now that there are these emerging like products how do we test them and how do we put like ROI numbers on that so that we can kind of better advocate for scaling that technology in the field um so I think that's really interesting work. Um, I think uh, another kind of Madeline Gannon is certainly a designer, but like has really thought about uh, human machine interfaces, right? So now that architects and designers work more with these machines, how do we actually like, is it all just like I'm typing at a computer and I send a text file or can we actually use like gesture control and voice control? Like how do our bodies interact with these things in physical spaces? And she's done a lot of like really interesting um kind of work in that area um i don't know we should probably throw in some like ai person too like right <laughs> there's so much uh those are just a few like random names that come to mind oh there's speaking of ai i just saw no no uh post <laughs> so like there's somebody who's like i mean gosh i, I when i first met no, no, Martinez Alonso, by the way, if you don't know him already, like he was doing a residency at the Autodesk Build Space in Boston. And I, I don't even, I think I might've, I might be mixing up my Boston trips. I might've been there for Designalize to interview Madeline Gannon. And then I think I might've run into No, No, who's doing a residency there. Um, and that was like the first time that I saw like a designer interacting with like machine learning and thinking about, um, you know, what are the possibilities there? Um, 
and he <laughs> and he worked uh he's also really close with um jose luis uh, garcia who teaches at the gsd and teaches this you know he actually, he he does these like interactive like grasshopper courses too he's like an amazing educator you know like i would if i were going to school right now i'd definitely want to take his class and kind of learn computation through his eyes um and he just runs like a brilliant seminar that kind of introduces students to generative design and AI. And he just kind of takes all of the zeitgeist and all of these kind of principles and how they're emerging and how they interact and kind of creatively explores that uh, with his students. Um, so I don't know. There's, did I get to six? I forget. Almost. No, these are five. Yeah. I got to five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I feel like Any, well, it should be so we should get somebody more senior right like who like who inspired <laughs> me um uh how about like martha sakari from like foster and partners right so she's someone now who's in like a leadership position at like you know one of arguably the world's most influential architecture firm um she was doing like generative components at smart geometry when i was just like going into college and i've always followed her. That, that's a cool story too because then she became my customer and actually <laughs> did some of the seminal like research into the use of spot to create a construction digital twin and kind of validating uh you know design intent as represented by bim relative to the actual reality capture the you know what actually happens on a job site and kind of tracking those differences and understanding how to control or or kind of mediate those differences. So uh, yeah, let's get let's get someone like who's more of an influence on that team too. So there, that's just a random first six people. I thought uh, <laughs> that's not a bad team. I'd hang out yeah. with them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very like diverse team. Yeah. And how how does a day in your life look like right now um i let's see um well i'm a product manager so i am not using grasshopper um i <laughs> design a lot shout out thank you oh i forgot zach i forgot to put zach downey on my team oh no um, my, my designalized co-host designalized, by the way, used to like, it started as, uh, like a video tutorial site. And some of when I was teaching myself grasshopper, I was like watching D Zach Downey's like designalized videos. And he had a lot of really great ones for Python too. Um, and then I met him at, at CUNY and started hanging out at his office a lot, just cause I thought he was cool and smart. And then we ended up just doing, <laughs> we were always like drinking beers with like random people passing through the school who were interested in the same things we were. And then we're like, let's just record this. And that's what design wise was. What question was I supposed to be answering? Sorry, I got sidetracked. Uh, like how does a day in your life look like? Oh, right. Yeah. So now as a, as a product manager, um, I use Asana. So I'm all about that process automation. So set up, uh, email is the devil. Um, <laughs> If you haven't read a world without email, you should you should read it and like wake up from the nightmare that is most knowledge work. Um, so I have a lot of automation set up in my email, either aggressively filtering it out or uh, converting it into tasks and then managing um, those tasks in Asana, prioritizing those on a I want to call it like a sprint, but just on a weekly basis to understand what what's the achievable scope of work this week and what's the priority and then kind of working through those items. So that's when I'm like working at home and have time to sit down and kind of plan my day and like execute things methodically. Um, if I don't get like distracted by Twitter or, or the news or something, but uh, a lot of times I'm on the road. So a day in my life is like waking up in a hotel and uh, <laughs> trying to remember where I am in the world and then uh, going to a customer job site with Spot and working with that customer to get them toward operational use of the robot. So, you know, over the last three years working with Spot, we've kind of gone from 
when I was a customer, it was really about product market fit, like where might a quadruped be useful in various industries. And then it was about early adopters to say, well, we've got product market fit in construction, but what are the actual applications? And then we said, oh, okay, uh, autonomous laser scan surveys and um, autonomous job site monitoring with like photo documentation are like the two applications. And now how do we build better solutions around that? And then how do we work with that to bring value to customers faster so that they can get the robot out of their innovation groups or they're testing multiple applications on multiple sites and do site specific pilots where they're like, okay, I really just want to do autonomous laser scanning and track my work in place and look for deviations from BIM. And I'm going to like run those missions every night and kind of build up this four dimensional data set of my site. And then that also can form the basis of a construction twin that can then later be adopted into like an operational twin at handoff to the owner and exploring those ideas. Um, and my goal is to just make that robot like so useful that you naturally want to use it every day and the rest kind of takes care of itself. So that's like so much of what I do is just being on site with customers and using the robot. Um, last summer, the, the thrust was all about our new autonomy system. So originally the autonomy system was kind of on a rail, right? Like the robot walked a path and then performed actions on that, like triggered laser scan. Um, but you can't do that in a dynamic environment. Eventually somebody builds a wall or a door gets closed or they park a scissor lift sideways and then the robot can't stay on that rail and then can't move laterally far enough, at least not safely and in a controlled way to consistently get around that. So we kind of decoupled the, the actions or the inspections that you perform, taking a photo, starting and stopping a video camera, taking a laser scan um, from the map so the idea is like you can just take the robot around and just kind of map as much as you want and then automatically that creates an interconnected topology of possible routes and then on top of that you say okay i want you to perform these inspection points or these scan points and in this particular order and then the path planning is automatic through that topology based on that order it's just kind of the shortest path between those and then inevitably you run into a situation you didn't expect where the robot can't get to the inspection point and then it looks at the overall map and dynamically replans and then continues its mission and goes around so that level of flexibility in addition to some other kind of tunable parameters that support all of that um was huge so it's not like all summer like sweating on i'm always like either like so sweaty or so cold because you're on construction <laughs> sites. It's like never perfect. But um, so that like vastly improved the autonomy system. And then, you know, once you have that in your core product, then you kind of go back to your services and your APIs and you strengthen those so the other developers can also leverage that. And that's really where we're at right now too, because we said, hey, like, not as we expand into more customers people aren't going to want to say like oh I, i'm going to buy a robot and figure out how to use it they're going to say i want an autonomous scanning solution because that's valuable i don't if it has a robot fine but that's not what i'm buying so that's why we have a strategic alliance with trimble um so you know trimble is a huge construction company they've got bim and cad and field devices laser scanners gnss receivers total stations um so they have the expertise to really like bring spot to market as like a full construction solution not just a robot uh so have been really working hand in hand with them on their scanning product and some of the other things they're developing through um triple field link which is like their field interface for all those devices and so now it's just all those devices go on a robot and you can automate those workflows so i also spend a lot of time uh either you know working with them in our headquarters in waltham uh, boston dynamics or flying out to uh denver where one of the big trimble offices is um collaborating with them on their their trimble solutions so uh i would say roughly like one week at home one week on the road kind of back and forth is how it goes. Uh, so that's why I gave you such a long and meandering answer to what's a day in the life because it's not like super consistent. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to see Brian uh, sweaty or hustling, check out his Instagram. He shares a lot of travel yeah. stories. <laughs> but well, well now, now my Instagram is mostly pictures of weird like robot movies or like 
any movie with a weird vehicle in it and i just take a photo <laughs> of like the screen that i'm watching so my instagram has become horrible but you know you're welcome to follow along if if, if it pleases you <laughs> very archaic and <laughs> you mentioned about your productivity hack about email and yeah this is my last question uh, before we conclude the interview like what are other life hacks you have or productivity hacks you you have in place uh yeah so i'm not i'm not like super into life hacking um the thought kind of just exhausts me like i don't want to have to think <laughs> about my life the same way i think about work so like i i really work hard for like kaizen or improvement moments at work minimizing email better scheduling methods understanding how to better utilize like meetings better collaboration how to like block off time for deep focus work you know all these things that you can that I kind of were inspired by a world without email and similar books but really also took like a team effort like the whole product team really had to buy into that and support each other in implementing new workflows so continuous improvement is really important to me at work like in life i i mean i don't know i <laughs> like try to like have one right so the ability to kind of disconnect at the end of the day spend time with family and relax i recently moved to long island so in the summer i get to spend a lot of time on the water which is which is really fun um i got my boating safety certificate several weeks ago which is exciting Whoa. yeah it's kind of there's no like boating license in new york but like by i think 2025 everybody has to have this like certificate to operate one so in my future fantasy world where i'm driving around on a boat um out in the water uh and i like to you know i like to, to exercise and i like to play basketball and play soccer and when i go to colorado i like to try to make time to snowboard um so i'm not just always constantly thinking about work and doing stuff <laughs> so like i don't do a lot of like you know i'm not like building robots in my free time like that doesn't the idea doesn't <laughs> particularly appeal to me because it's just like more work and my brain is fried um so i try to i try to do something else and i've got like a niece and a nephew out here who are very cute little babies and a couple more on the way um this spring so uh i like to spend time with them as well yeah no more three days all nighter no not really <laughs> every once in a while i'll have a red eye flight that i can't sleep on that's about as close as i get to all nighters these days thankfully i see so i have a rapid fire round to conclude the interview you you will uh, only get 10 15 seconds and you got to keep your answer brief no oh, jeez okay, okay. <laughs> uh which which cities in your travel bucket list like ones that i haven't been to yet it's open oh okay well my favorite city that i've ever been to is probably between like berlin and mexico city and copenhagen um cities i'd really love to go to someday uh i have never been to japan or india so i'd really like to do that um and i'd like to go into like the north seas like faroe islands or shetland or north scotland or something like that yeah. i can make you itinerary for india yes that would be awesome <laughs> <laughs> i see uh, any technical or business book which made a big impact in your life uh definitely a world without email um but the other one is crossing the chasm which is specific to how to bring like a high tech product to market um especially and like the chasm is kind of the space between the early adopters which can give you like a misleading idea of how popular the product is to the early majority which are like people normal companies waiting to see you know is this actually useful are my competitors using it um and that's a that's a tricky time in a company's life i see your favorite movie oh my god that's that's impossible um jeez <laughs> there's like so many sci-fi movies i like what uh that's an impossible question for me because i'm so like <laughs> passionate about sci-fi movies i like couldn't possibly answer that um i can tell you the latest one i watched this <laughs> which, which was horrible it was a terrible movie it was called battle truck it's from 1982 and it's like a post-apocalyptic movie where like a guy on a suzuki motorcycle fights this person in like an armored semi truck um 
It's by Harley Kokeless, uh, who is an interesting director, had also directed uh, a really fun movie that's actually pretty good called Black Moon Rising, about how like an experimental car gets gets uh, stolen. I'm not keeping this short at all. I'm just like rambling. <laughs> about weird Next question. <laughs> I see. I'll, I'll make it easy. Your favorite restaurant. My favorite restaurant. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, there's a restaurant called, <laughs> speaking of India, Ambar <laughs> India, um, oh. which is in, it's in uh, Clifton, uh, which is a neighborhood in Cincinnati. Cincinnati's engineering school brings quite a bit of people in from India. There's like a huge population there. And they have good, what's amazing about Cincinnati is they have like the best North and South Indian cuisine. So it's like if you're like a dosa person versus a, I don't know, Sag Paneer person, like just, just, it's all there and it's all so good. And it's better than what I've had in New York even. So um, now I haven't obviously haven't had it in India. Um, <laughs> But in terms of like, if you're not in India, I, I truly believe that Cincinnati has the best Indian food. Awesome. I see Mark asking your podcast question. What is architecture? <laughs> God, <laughs> I don't know. How, how Stupidest <laughs> answer only. <laughs> Anything that has a toilet in it, right? What were all the weird answers we used to get? I don't, and everybody was just like, uh, couldn't possibly define this i mean architecture is like lowercase or, ca or capital right so there's the there's the discipline of architecture which is how we think about it usually in school and how we think about it as like a culture what does it mean to us um how do we practice there and then there's like the practice of architecture like the business of building buildings um but like what is architecture today uh you know i would say like a uh <laughs> a one of the services involved in delivering buildings uh, that has had its kind of scope vastly reduced over the years through the limitation of liability and perhaps does not serve much of a future function, we shall see. I see. And uh, lastly, anything uh, you wish you would have done differently in life? Okay, so I don't, yeah, I don't think that way um, because I don't really think, we often don't think on time scales large enough. So like something that I thought was, a bit, I don't know, like, oh, I wish the recession hadn't happened so I could have gone into architecture, but I feel like that worked out for me, even though it felt really bad at the time. So I don't, I think we often don't think on time scales long enough. I don't think we can really judge whether things were, mistakes or not i mean the other the other part of this too is that i believe that like time is a rail and that like free will is an illusion so like whatever's like whatever's going on like whatever happened happened man and you have to kind of look forward um but i guess if i could i mean any anytime i think about how i could change my behavior it is it is 100 always i wish i had been kinder to people and I wish I had spent more time with people I love. So I think like those are perhaps kind of overarching themes, but other than that, you know, I, I don't look back too much. Got it. And I might invite you a couple of years in future from recording this. What What is Brian's life in 2025? Um, spots have completely taken over construction at that point no i think ideally <laughs> what we'd be talking about is like how commonplace robotics are in in practice and i think like we could talk about the digital twin more as a as a common workflow and process like what does it mean to here's like what i think the digital twin ultimately is is like product lifecycle management for a building so we could say like building lifecycle management like as a technology process by all the stakeholders who both deliver and operate buildings can we like take a long view like for our if i'm advocating for architects in particular like can they have client relationships that last through an entire building lifetime rather than just being concerned with the delivery of the building can they extend their kind of strong priors and 3d modeling BIM and, and building data organization into the actual operation of a building. Um, I, I'd hope we could be kind of talking about that. Or we're talking about like, hey, remember architecture? Remember how that used to be a discipline 
and now <laughs> you know i don't know now it's all you know big tech uh you know real estate and uh general contractors that have taken over uh so it should be a few interesting years also like hopefully we're not like in the middle of like a pandemic and a european war um like hopefully the world gets its head on straight so we'll see i see some sci-fi vibes here where a big corp is taking over <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe it's hard to not think too dystopian into the future but we can still we can still hold out hope okay uh I, I just want to ask this last question. So you just need to answer bullish or bearish uh, metaverse? Bearish. AI in architecture? Bullish, but probably not the way most people think about AI. Blockchain in architecture, AC? Mm, bearish. All right. Uh, I think that's it. I have. It was a fun. <laughs> it was a very fun time uh, hosting you. Thanks a lot for sharing your journey and thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. See you. Have a nice rest of your day. Bye-bye. You too.